Hey guys, my name is Piers Kicks from Bitcraft and you're listening to the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. As always, I'm your host Ben Mattis and I have with me a very special guest today. Pierce Kicks is a partner with Bitcraft Ventures a uh, blockchain-focused venture capital group with a particular focus on gaming and entertainment. And this conversation with Pierce is a really interesting one because obviously he's incredibly insightful in the subjects of blockchain and crypto, cryptocurrencies, uh, the play-to-earn movement, how crypto is going to sort of overlap with gaming, all of that sort of stuff. Really, really interesting. Um, Definitely an area I'm continuing to try and wrap my head around and understand. But the reason why, one of the reasons why I found this interview so insightful myself is because, frankly, Pierce has a very familiar background. I mean, he got his start in the crypto space playing video games and gold farming. And I mean, how many of us played MMOs and, you know, whatever, had effectively little online businesses of some way, shape or form. The only difference is Pierce found a way to actually turn that into real money. And when I was his age, I didn't. But um, it it was a really insightful interview. Uh, I learned a lot about this space, the challenges that are still uh, in front of us to try and find a way to kind of bridge the gap from this highly decentralized world of of blockchain technology and, and frankly, kind of the play to earn movement and the sort of centralized platform type gaming ecosystem that we live in today, where the Steams and the Apples and the Googles sort of have these incredibly strong walled gardens. And we had a lot of debate and discussion about sort of what would have to happen in order to bridge the gap between the two. Uh, If any of that sounds interesting to you, I think you'll find this an incredibly insightful interview and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. All right. Well, here we go. Pierce, uh, we've been talking about this for weeks. It's so awesome to finally well, have you on the podcast and have a chance to uh, dive into this conversation with you. Thanks for thanks for being here today. Absolutely. Massive fan of uh, the podcast you've been running and uh, excited to get going. <laughs> this this should be fun. It's um obviously we're going to talk a lot about, you know, uh decentralized and crypto and blockchain and, you know, metaverse kind of stuff and uh, we were just chatting earlier that it's a interesting time to be a fan of all of that stuff because a previous guest on the show Matthew Ball had a had a relatively big announcement today. You were saying you were you were up late reading his uh, reading his essays and uh, tracking everything that he's doing. I uh, most certainly am. I'm a religious devourer of his essays. So uh, yeah, <laughs> excited to be on after after Matthew. Yeah, kudos. I had a brief chat with him yesterday, and he's got a lot going on. It, it's a it's a fun time to be a, a fan of the metaverse and be sort of I don't know navigating in this this huge web that we're all talking about. There's a lot going on. Um, when, when you and I had our first, uh, you know, whatever preliminary sync, uh, I guess that was, you know, a month or so ago, you, you shared a pretty fun story. Uh, and I thought it would be great to open with. You were talking about your sort of childhood and some of the things about your childhood that prepared you for a career in gaming and crypto. Um, sorry to ask you to go through exactly the same story a second time, but I wasn't recording it last time and I thought it would be a great, a great kickoff. So do you mind starting with that? Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess, uh, like many, you know, 
grew up pretty pretty fascinated by computers in general. Um, definitely gaming, but but also beyond that. Um, I think I don't know. From a very young age, I was always super interested in you know messing around with different operating systems, figuring out how different bits of software worked. Um, was always fascinated with I don't know wiring up amps and stuff. Whenever my dad would buy new uh, new hardware, um, vividly remember you know playing on his old Macintosh, playing Quake in like I don't know like two thousand three or something when. When I was about four years old, um, but um, yeah, I guess uh, along the way, um, one of the games that really um, had a had a big impact on on my life and, and definitely my brothers at the time as well was uh, was a game called RuneScape, um, which you know first logged into and in probably. 2005, and, and most recently logged into about two weeks ago, so it's definitely stuck with me. Um, but uh, yeah, that that was a game that you know we we played over many years, many summers, um, messed around with different sort of RuneScape private servers and and, and various uh, sort of things. But um, you know, one of the one of the things which kind of led me to crypto was uh, messing around as as many did back in the day with sort of gold farming aspects of those video games. Um, I'm sure if people aren't familiar with RuneScape directly, they will have heard of, of World of Warcraft and whatnot. Um, right. And you know, it's a it's been a been a big trend for a long time whereby people go into these game worlds and you know uh, sort of mine resources and gather armor or whatever and, and basically liquidate it for the game currency and then typically you know there are these sort of gray markets that operate around these game economies and would allow you to usually with sort of like Chinese gold sellers um, sell this stuff um, so that's ultimately actually how I ended up getting my first sort of exposure to Bitcoin um, where this is sort of like summer of 2012 I guess um, and from there yeah, became sufficiently intrigued with it over the years. Kind of, um, you know, grew up with that as as like a backdrop. Um, was always was always pretty intrigued by the latest developments and whatnot. Um, I think as I grew up, I learned you know a lot more about mining and different mining pools and rigs and reward types and whatnot. Um, and obviously at the time, I didn't really have the mental frame of reference to fully appreciate a lot of this stuff. But definitely, as I as I grew up, that was a, a constant in the background for me, and I became increasingly curious. And um, you know, ultimately, also sort of led me to. Uh, the Ethereum ecosystem, which I, I once this kind of idea of the world computer um, clicked, it uh, you know it was really opened my mind to a lot of possibilities, and I ended up sort of aping that both financially and intellectually, spending a lot of my time um, you know reading about it um, from sort of I guess back in the 2016 onwards was was pretty interested in it all. And yeah, ultimately, um, kind of stuck with that um, along the way. Um, I was heavily playing games throughout all of this period. Of course, played a, played a bunch of um, FPSs, got to pretty high rank uh, uh, in in Rainbow Six Siege, which was good fun. And then, um, That's yeah, awesome. ultimately went on to study sort of computer science and philosophy, only for a brief period before um, sort of meeting two uh, backers who sort of wanted to invest in myself and, and my best mate Ben at the time. Um, we uh, sort of moved out to Seville in Spain and, and set up the first company out there. Which is basically a you know investment fund um, focused on the crypto ecosystem, and uh, yeah, that's kind of what sort of kicked it all off. And then you know things have evolved along the way. Um, ended up sort of meeting the uh, Delphi Digital team. Um, I'd uh, just spent you know a bunch of time figuring out all the different jurisdictions and whatnot where we could sort of formalize a, a, an investment structure and raise proper external capital. Um, and I'd started reading the, the sort of Delphi research and these were five guys that had dropped out of Wall Street trying to bring this sort of institutional grade analysis to the digital asset space. Um, yep. And I'd been involved for you know uh, uh, quite a while and it was definitely sort of the best research I'd seen. Um, so was out in New York and we got chatting and Ultimately, paths converged, and I kind of have teamed up with those guys um, and sort of, you know, helped launch the the venture arm of Delphi. Um, and by extension, I've, I've got much more involved over the past couple of years on 
the research business too, where in particular, I've had a, a focus on the whole sort of NFT and gaming side of things, which is, you know, kind of my uh, core excitement about a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously even just in, in recent years, sort of 2017 onwards, where CryptoKitties started and we started to think a bit more about, you know, the concept of an NFT, what it is and what it can be used for. And um, obviously thoughts beginning to crystallize about um, the role that these technologies could play and, you know, how kind of the internet's going to evolve and virtual worlds and virtual economies along with it. And you ended up, and where are you now? Mm. Um, so most recently, as of I think four, four or five months ago now, um, I've joined the Bitcraft team um, okay. who are awesome, awesome guys. Um, you know, one of the first sort of institutional game funds in the space. Exactly. Um, started yep. in 2015, uh, sort of focused on esports, but have now expanded yep. to gaming and interactive media more broadly. So all very awesome. exciting. So, okay, I wanted you to close with that because you went from gold farming in, you know, as a young teen to helping to run crypto arm of one of the larger, more successful gaming funds in the world in a relatively short period of time, which is awesome. And you made a connection there, which was, I'm going to paraphrase, yada, 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 gold farming, yada, 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 crypto. And, and so, you know, you, you sort of said, you planted this seed that your experience with digital currencies and digital economies and persistent worlds and gold farming sort of planted the seeds that, you know, whatever grew to become this fascination in cryptocurrencies. And I've heard it said quite a lot that the virtual currencies and video games paved the way for cryptocurrencies, that a lot of the early adopters came from the gaming space. They were just natively comfortable with digital currencies. And I'd love for you to say to me and to the audience listening, what did gold and RuneScape have, or whatever the MMO or the persistent world is, or the game? What did the digital economy of RuneScape have that paper money monopoly doesn't, right? Why were these digital virtual currencies so imperative in laying the foundation for cryptocurrencies and their you know, whatever subsequent explosion. So I definitely think, um, you know, it's a, it's a sort of psychological thing, right? Um, it's just over, over all of those years, I think building that kind of familiarity and concept, um, uh, sorry, familiarity around the concept of, you know, natively digital value um, is something that I and many others who also played WoW and, and these other MMORPGs kind of um, grew up with, right? Um, these are worlds that like for, I don't know, five or six years of my life, I would have probably preferred that sort of in-game currency over real currency. You know, um, my brothers and I essentially, uh, lived in some of those game worlds for, for, for many years. And I think, uh, really having that sort of, um, allowing one of these digital currencies to have that much sort of, um, meaning and impact on you. I don't know. It's, it's always, um, well, Rather, it's not to me that perceptive uh, or perceivable almost um, in in terms of how it might have influenced my thinking around digital currency, because I kind of always just grew up with it as a given, right? Because that was like the the context uh, against which, you know, these things that I sort of grew into was sort of set against. Um, Mm -hmm. But I definitely think that there's something about these, you know, sort of vast digital worlds that so many people are growing up in nowadays that sort of conditions you towards this radically different perception of, you know, quote unquote, the digital realm um, that perhaps, you know, older generations or whatever don't have as much. Um, you know, I was always very familiar with the concept of, of, of value that is both created and consumed digitally. You know, I'd spend mm-hmm. 
hours upon hours of my summer slaving away on some runite ore in the wilderness <laughs> just yeah. to buy some buy some gear or whatever. So um, right. yeah, I don't, I don't think it's like as hard to wrap your head around if you've grown up that way. And so, I mean, this is probably a very difficult question to answer, but it, you know, we've all heard these stories. I've shared some of these stories myself on this, you know, podcast of the the young kid, quote unquote, young kid, because some of them aren't so young anymore, who would happily take, you know, a, a, a digital piece of clothing for their avatar over a physical item for their meat space feet, right? Like if it's their birthday, they'd rather get a pair of like, you know, sweet new like a sweet new Fortnite skin than a new pair of sneakers or something like that. We've all, we've all heard those, you know, of, of these people. And these are the sort of, you know, the natural audience, the natural denizens of this world where, you know, digital items have equal, if not greater value than physical ones. But the thing that I sometimes find myself wondering and, and people asking me is, well, how many is that? Like, are we, are there, are there hundreds of them? Are there hundreds of thousands? Are there hundreds of millions? Do you have any sense at all of the sort of scale of that audience? Or that maybe audience isn't the right word, the scale of that um, demographic? Yeah, I suspect that it's already pretty massive, you know? Um, again, I think it's like, at least from when I grew up, I also have, uh, you know, two little brothers, well, well, littler brothers that are, you know, 11 and 12 years old seeing them grow up again, spending time in, in these worlds, maybe to a less, less of an extent than the one, than the manner in which my brothers and I did, but, um, my older brothers that is, but they definitely are sort of that way inclined. Um, for them, you know, the ultimate birthday present is, is already sort of V bucks. And, um, that's definitely shared amongst all of their sort of, uh, peers at school right. and whatnot. So right. I totally think it's like a, from here on out type thing rather so than from the, the heyday of MMO on yeah. is 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 a generation of gamers who who are growing up with sort of equal or greater value in the in the digital world than in the in the physical one. Well, absolutely, and and, and then obviously we've got some other sort of uh, further catalysts or tailwinds for that on the horizon when we start talking about you know the mediums through which we interact with this stuff. When we start talking about virtual and augmented reality, I think that's going to take on a whole new level of, of meaning and uh, tangibility um, to, you know, like if that trend wasn't already strong enough, um, you know, it's, it's, it's coming. So yeah, when the so, two converge, it's yeah. even more important. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I strongly suspect it will, you know, in a shockingly small amount of time, you'll be asking the question of uh, who doesn't feel that way rather than who okay. does. Well, that's great. There's, there's, there's this, there's the sizzle right there. There's the teaser in a shockingly small amount of time. We'll be asking who doesn't see more value in the digital world than the physical one. That's, that's a great pull quote. Okay. Let's change gears just for a second. Um, the first, so we have these chunks that I want to talk to you about. And I, I feel like I could talk to you like for hours because I have so much that I want to dig into, but Let's start with chunk number one. I've labeled it here centralized versus decentralized or closed versus open or platforms versus, you know, whatever decentralized. So, you know, a lot of the discussion today about uh, metaverse, about crypto, you know, very quickly um, either bubbles up or, or, or drills down, depending on your point of view, to this sort of diametrically opposite worldviews, the open versus closed, 
the you know centralized versus the decentralized, the 2.0 versus the 3.0. So in your own words, like can you can you explain the the the, the difference between the two uh, to set the stage for the following questions? For sure. I mean, I mean, we could we could dig into some of the sort of different uh, technical aspects, but I, I suspect that's probably less relevant for most people. I think the important thing to understand is that you know blockchain and, and this fusion of technologies sort of for the first time enables the creation of platforms which aren't owned or controlled by anyone or any group in particular, and it kind of achieves this by replacing the role of the platform operator, whatever that is in whatever context, um, with a system of sort of crypto economic incentives, code, and consensus rules, which everyone sort of agrees to operate within. And in doing so, it kind of unlocks, it, it kind of allows for the benefits of network effects without the costs of market power, right? Which often manifests in the form of sort of privacy, transaction, or, or, or censorship costs. And importantly, like these incentive mechanisms usually mean that active participants in these protocols ultimately become their owners too. Yep. Not owners in an absolute sense, but they have some ownership in them, right? So major networks like Bitcoin and Ethereum, for example, obviously pay block rewards to miners in exchange for helping secure the network. In other protocols, incentives might manifest in other ways, like uh, take Uniswap, which is a decentralized exchange yeah. protocol on top of Ethereum that if I provide liquidity to, allowing others to sort of, you know, uh, switch one asset to another on top of Ethereum, then basically I share a portion of the fees generated by uh, any given liquidity pool, um, you know, for, for a sort of token pair that I'm helping facilitate. Even cooler, you have sort of additional incentives that come on top, perhaps unexpectedly. Again, in, in, in the context of Uniswap, there was this something called a retroactive airdrop, whereby they oh, essentially... Yeah, I- yeah, I heard about that. That was wicked cool. Yeah, so nobody knew this was coming, but they basically took a snapshot of the network and every address that had ever used, uh, you know, Uniswap's a protocol. It's a piece of code that lives on top of a blockchain just operating in the wild. No one will ever turn it off. It can't be turned off. That's just how it is. Anyway, they, they saw everyone that had ever used it and they basically sent them 400 uni tokens, which are basically a governance token for the protocol, but that's beside the point. Yeah, and there's um, like schools in India that like paid for like tuition with it <laughs> yeah. and like, all sorts of crazy cool yeah. stuff. I, I mean, even after this sell-off, the, I mean, uh, 400 uni tokens is probably worth, I don't know, seven or $8,000. Um, yeah. And like for most people who have multiple addresses, right, um, that's quite a lot of money that everyone got yeah. airdropped. So yeah. super cool. But, you know, a, a bit more back on topic, um, the cool thing about these uh, protocols and networks and sort of pieces of infrastructure is that they're kind of owned by like everyone and yet mm-hmm. no one at the same time, right? Yes. It's this sort of credible neutrality of this shared open infrastructure that makes them attractive. These are sort of global, digitally native technologies that are in some sense operating on top of the legacy infrastructure stack, um, but the kind of almost extend the functionality of the internet, right? For, for everyone yep. to use yep. in a manner that's resistant to yep. perhaps all forms of sort of coercion. And so just to be clear, I'm going to interrupt for just one second. You are talking here about the decentralized, the 3.0, the web 3.0 or whatever. Yeah. So the opposite of the platform, right? Yeah, I'm ta- exactly. I'm talking about what the, what the new platform looks like. Exactly. Cause I think we, we, we should be familiar enough with, uh, you know, the, yeah, the, the existing sort of stack. But just to be, just to be explicit, if you'll, if you'll permit me, you know, 10 seconds, you know, Apple, Facebook, Google, those are 2.0. Those are platforms where 
you know, the, the, the company in question, Apple, is judge, jury, executioner. They control the entire ecosystem. They get to decide what's on it, how it's monetized, etc. And so it's, it's by definition a closed platform. It is, it is the complete opposite of what you're talking about. Exactly. And, and they are the result of, you know, um, the sort of logical endpoint or extrapolation, if you like, of the, of the kind of organizational primitives that they evolved from, right? Yep. The concept of, you know, a company which evolved into a platform, obviously grew up with the internet and it's kind of like, it's just self-perpetuating the underlying sort of, you know, hierarchy and structure of, you know, an institution of a business that we kind of inherited from, you know, I don't know where, but I think the cool thing about these decentralized technologies, these crypto economic systems is that they're unlocking fundamentally new forms of, you know, human coordination in essence, that doesn't look like a corporation that, you know, of old. Yeah, exactly. But even, even aside from DAOs, just the concept of, you know, the Bitcoin network, it's like this organism that pays people to ensure its survival, right? These things, yeah. are, <laughs> it's really cool the way they work. Um, yeah. And it kind of, you know, allows sort of disparate entities to trustlessly self-organize at massive scale in, in a way that looks nothing like your traditional company or corporate structure. And, cool. and so you can kind of think of these decentralized technologies, in essence, as a disintermediation force that's beginning to sort of proliferate across any vertical where a network effect is captured by a centralized entity. So we can kind of think about this in the context of, you know, Bitcoin with arguably sort of central banks and the role that they have around money, right? Mm -hmm. In the context of DeFi, you're starting to see your traditional financial institutions disintermediated. You know, I just mentioned Uniswap. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of lending and borrowing protocols now. Yeah, absolutely. Arguably, um, you know, we're starting to see it with sort of games publishers or, or like in, in the sense that, you know, projects like Axie Infinity are, you know, disrupting what a traditional game uh, would, would look like. And by the way, you know, Axie Infinity right now is generating more revenue than pretty much all of the top DeFi protocols, which is kind of crazy um, for a digital pet game. It's, it's pretty nuts what that's kicking out right now. And then, of course, we have this whole Web 3.0 concept, right, which is kind of looking to sort of disintermediate the web's gatekeepers by prioritizing user sovereignty and sort of putting users back in control of their data. Okay, so you, you've just listed so many, I guess, contributing factors to the, the rise of decentralized or the growth of decentralized, right? There's financial incentives, there's, there's, there's economic sovereignty incentives, there's, uh, you know, whatever, um, uh, well, in fact, the, 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 there's new organizational structure incentives. There's all sorts of reasons uh, why uh, decentralized is, is growing. Um, you haven't talked a ton about regulation. Do you have any thoughts about the role of effectively the most centralized of all centralized authorities, i.e. government, and how it's shaping the sort of whatever epic struggle between centralized and decentralized? So generally, I mean, I think that if regulation and the way it manifests kind of asphyxiates the undeniable explosion of innovation going on, you're going to contribute to effectively driving people and business away from your jurisdiction. In the Mm -hmm. same way when, you know, the web was really evolving in the 90s and there was this sort of open versus closed debate then, there would be no Silicon Valley if, you know, uh, the 
latter had won out over the former. And again, we're talking about something that is native to the internet, is global in nature. From a sort of game theory perspective, you know, it makes no sense to, you know, come crashing down with a heavy hand here. I mean, I totally think that lots of it, um, you know, some aspects of the ecosystem could benefit from, from, you know, better regulation. But, you know, there needs to be a sufficient amount of time and learning and understanding on behalf of the regulators before they move in. Obviously, right. post the whole ICO boom, we saw all sorts of uh, yep. terrible behavior, and oh, rightly oh, and rightly, justice has been brought down upon a, a lot of people there. But um, yeah, I mean, it, as I say, I think we're in a in a very different stage of of um, evolution for these technologies, even you know from a few years ago. I think you hear how people that sit, uh, you know, in regulatory bodies are starting to applaud and embrace and and and, and speaking a bit more positively about a lot of this stuff. I think um, some of it is just so exciting and, and, and undeniably better uh, in, in some respects than earlier models. Um, yep. Yep. You know, I think it will all, it'll all happen. It'll all come together all in good time. So, okay, I'm going to throw some particular names into this conversation. Like the, the incumbents, the big platforms, the Facebooks and Googles and Apples, they obviously have a lot of money and they've got a lot of lawyers in their corner to ensure, to try and ensure that they don't lose everything they've spent the last you know, whatever, 15, 20 years uh, building to a potential 3.0 or, or decentralized wave. And so part of that is, you know, whatever, fighting to keep their platforms closed. Uh, part of that is, you know, whatever, interacting with regulators who are maybe trying to kind of break up their monopolies. Part of that is, you know, whatever, pushing back against, you know, in lawsuits against people who are sort of trying to, you know, sideload or, 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 or what have you, if we look at the sort of, you know, Apple versus Epic kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So do you see any chance of a sort of like iterative opening, right? Like, or, or do you think it's going to be, they'll stay closed until open has one and then, you know, whatever, like it'll be too late for them. Or do you think they might open up in steps? And I, I recognize that this is like hugely, hugely speculative, but I guess that idea of opening in steps versus just kind of like one day being closed and the next day being open is it's unclear to me whether it's possible to iterate towards openness or whether decentralized openness has to be, you know, at the architectural level, it has to be built into the DNA, not just of the organization, but of the, you know, the entire stack. Well, I definitely don't think it necessarily needs to be built in, you know, at at the very ground level. Like you could quite easily see a way that, um, you know, if one of these big distribution platforms wanted to allow crypto related activity through one of their stores, they could write a smart contract that dictates that any economic activity goes through it, uh, you know, that goes through it takes, uh, you know, X percent in fees. So in that sense, on the distribution side, it probably would be possible. You know, obviously, Google and Apple are undeniably of the most consequence here with, with the whole distribution duopoly. Um, and it is, it's an interesting question of like, what would it take for, for crypto to actually break these down? And, and will it be iterative or whatever? I think there definitely remains a huge amount of, of sort of uncertainty around how things like crypto games are going to evolve in this context and, and how we might be able to actually have them on, on the app store or whatever. Um, you know, for, for now, most people are still doing the sort of custom APK route. There's not a great solution on 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 iOS just yet. Um, and 
you know, even, even if that proves to be too cumbersome, like um, some crypto games are just going to opt to have all transactional stuff take place in a web app, uh, you know, where yeah. you just authenticate your wallet and then you have your assets in the mobile app and, and that's that. There's no actual trade there. But I'm wondering whether it ultimately manifests as like, you know, some crypto powered experience is so mind blowing and exciting that everyone wants to sort of participate it and participate in it rather. Um, you know, it's not totally uncommon for platform choice to be driven by desire for Good a point. particular game ecosystem or even experience. Yeah, right? App, right? People buy PCs, even if they have Macs to access certain games, if you, you buy a PlayStation, if you're on Xbox and so on, it's not completely uncommon. And if people can't access something that everyone else wants in on from an iPhone, maybe over the next five years, there's this big breakout, then, you know, maybe they really will go and buy, let's say, a Samsung. Like, you know, we, we already know that Samsung has been making significant investments in blockchain infrastructure. Perhaps they'd be willing to fully embrace it along with their wallet technology on, let's say, the Samsung store. Like, obviously, that would create um, some potential tensions with Google and stuff. But I can kind of see something like that as maybe a potential in terms of the iterative component. In the, you know, in, in the same way that Epic's kind of looking to force the hands of exactly. other industry participants with reduced marketplace fees and other value-add services for developers... I don't think it's totally unreasonable to think that another relatively major player might try something, you know, in the mobile space with a particular emphasis, uh, emphasis on crypto as a means of distinction. I should note that I think we're a long way from most Web3 experiences actually rivaling the convenience and UX of existing platforms. Yeah. But that's kind of thing. That's kind of how I think we might get there. And, and it's hard to see a, a more crypto native distribution platform or, or even sort of operating system emerging in the near term simply due to the, you know, sheer size of most of these incumbents at this stage. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how I think we, we might see a sort of stepping stone uh, type approach. And yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Interesting. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I like the, well, first of all, I like the, the point that, you know, a, a killer app could be an iteration and, and also the suggestion that, there are whatever you want to, I don't want to call them tier two because it's not like Samsung's a small fish, but hmm. there are other major players in the technology ecosystem who might have a slightly different perspective on open versus closed. And if one of them were to come to the table with like a big sort of what you like into like an epic level, you know, epic, epic Fortnite kind of level move, um, that also might kind of sort of start the, the, you know, snowball rolling down the hill. So those are good examples of ways that we could see closed platforms kind of be forced to iterate towards openness, uh, which is, which is really cool. Um, and, and I guess I, I want to talk a little bit about, you've brought it up a couple of times, like Axiom Infinity. Um, obviously, you know, there's, there's other sort of, you know, whatever quote unquote big, biggish crypto games out there right now. You, you know, you've got your sandbox, you've got your Decentraland, you know, Blancos. Uh, I know that there are, you know, whatever my neighbor Alice, there's sort of new ones it seems are being announced almost, you know, weekly these days. Um, have you played them? Mm -hmm. Frankly, do you play them? Um, not religiously, not in the way I'd play yeah. <laughs> other games. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and, um, you know, tell you that the sophistication of game experiences is, is where it could be yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that aside though, there's something beautiful and exciting about the, you know, exploration of an entirely new business model around gaming. When you, when, when, when you look at Axie Infinity, I don't think people quite appreciate the you know, speed and extent of their growth lately, you know, go back four months, three months, they're at, I don't know, 38,000 daily active users. That's now like 200,000, right? This is blowing up all across, um, you know, 
emerging markets in particular, the Philippines, Venezuela, Pakistan, India. And there are all of these wicked stories coming out of this whole, you know, play to earn ecosystem about people who have realized that they can earn more playing these games than, you know, working their job as a, as a sort of taxi driver or whatever. And look, it's obviously, um, still very early. Like Axie is the breakout case study for play to earn gaming. There are still some questions around, you know, you know, sustainability in that ecosystem and, and what these game economies look like as they mature. I mean, it's already pretty big, this economy, but like, it's in, it's really exciting to be a part of and you know participate in discussions and forums and um you know there's all these governance proposals that anyone who owns the tokens for the game have a vote in like it's a very exciting time to be exploring all of these things um totally you know I, I think i don't know obviously i'm hugely convicted uh in all of this stuff but it, it, it seems to me like the biggest shift easily comfortably since sort of mobile um and yeah i i, I you know, gameplay aside, these things are fascinating to me. Um, and I think they're going to inform, you know, what the future looks like. Yep. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I guess, so, you know, the, the sort of business finance nerd in me, the speculator in me finds these things fascinating, right? The gamer in me does not. Mm-hmm. And I am anxious and excited to see that change. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm curious, I'm, I'm sort of anxiously scanning the horizon to, to see when we're going to get that. For, and maybe that's the killer app, right? That first blend between really sort of engaging, innovative, engrossing gameplay, narrative mechanics, you know, the kinds of things that you would expect in a RuneScape or, a, a, you know, whatever, Rainbow Six Siege or a Fortnite or what have you married with everything that we've been talking about in terms of, you know, whatever, the, the explosive growth and potential financial freedom and sovereignty and, and, and whatnot of, of, a, of, a, of a game like Axiom. They're, they're, that marriage is very interesting and inspiring to me. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Um, I, I don't know. I think by the end of next year, though, um, <laughs> what you just described uh, will be here from a gameplay perspective, whether there'll be enough variety of high quality games that, you know, one in particular piques your interest is another question. But of course, yeah. I'm, um, I've been really strongly encouraged by conversations I've been having, seeing, you know, real game developer talent moving into this space. Then comes the problem, though, that the technology whilst it's improving all the time and all the major bottlenecks in the form of scalability and usability are being solved, there's some awesome solutions coming to market. Um, I think from the developer tooling perspective, you can't hope to engage at this stage without, um, you know, at least some blockchain knowledge if you're building today, right? Yeah. I think that yeah. changes in six months. There's a bunch of projects building really interesting tooling that make it much easier. You don't need to write in solidity. Yeah. But um, right now, uh, that's what I'm saying. It's like this rare on the Venn diagram between game developer and crypto developer, there's a, there's a sweet spot, which few yep. people are filling right now, but um, yep. definitely, definitely changing. Cool. Cool. Okay. So, so that was a, a, an interesting conversation about sort of centralized versus decentralized. Another topic that I want to talk about, I mean, they're all interconnected, right? Talking about Venn diagrams, there's a big overlap in the second theme with, with that first one, but I want to talk about marketplaces. Um, or, or, or in general, the idea of sort of, you know, a decentralized marketplace, peer-to-peer, as opposed to, you know, whatever, like the in-game shop that we've all become so, you know, familiar with over the last 20 years of playing these games with these digital currencies and these digital economies. 
So, I mean, you know, creators matter, right? I, I, I had Blake Robbins on here. He was an awesome guest to talk about, you know, the creator economy. Uh, I have other guests I'm lining up who have a ton of thoughts about creators and, and, you know, why they exist and how they exist and how to, you know, service them and include them in part of the development process and all sorts of stuff. So clearly creators are, uh, what did Blake call them? They're, they're the modern day celebrities, right? So creators matter. Creator content matters. User-generated content matters. And we know that creators would like to get paid for their creations, right? I mean, of course, some people just do it for the love and some people just do it for the likes. But generally speaking, if you're incentivized to hone your craft, uh, well, you know, that the greatest incentive that there is continues to be monetary for most people. So how does crypto help? that challenge, the challenge of financially incentivizing creators? So, yeah, I think one of the first things that I've kind of, um, you know, touched upon is that to begin with, you're operating on a, on a, you know, global financial infrastructure that is native to the internet. So to begin with, there's some degree of advantage in terms of uh, how streamlined that is and, you know, addressable market in terms of, you know, um, I, I guess just payments and, and economics around stuff. Um, I think legacy payment infrastructure is significantly, it has significantly more friction than, than this space does. Once you're in, that is obviously there's the onboarding, onboarding process that people need to familiarize with this new sort of tech stack. But once that's out the way, um, you know, you have stuff like programmable cash flows all of a sudden, right? Which, which give rise to sort of on-chain royalties such that now basically, you know, these crypto native platforms that lend themselves to things like UGC, you know, where maybe some big streamer wants to come in and make a custom avatar or, you know, virtual asset and sell it in the store. Whereas, you know, Roblox is taking maybe 70% of revenues, I think it is. Here, the game company, you know, is probably taking, I don't know, 25% on primary sales. So already, um, you know, that's in the interest of uh, the creator. And then again, the reason they can do that is because there's this secondary monetary, uh, sort of this secondary revenue stream, which we don't have typically, which is capturing a small percentage, let's say, I don't know, maybe 5% uh, as a marketplace fee, right? So all secondary market activity that now occurs, whereas you might have a streamer skin in, you know, Rainbow Six, you might have a weapon charm, which is sold once and that's that, you do your drop. Now you might have a limited edition drop People, you know, are really excited about this. They bid it up. The primary sales go for a bunch. People are willing to invest more because they know it's an actual asset and they own it. And so, you know, you do well off the primary sales, maybe not on par with what you would have got, you know, in the traditional setup, but still very well. You keep, you know, 75% as opposed to 30% of the revenues. And then as the secondary market builds for it, if you've done your drop properly, it's an asset that people desire. Maybe it has some utility within this game context or you know, can unlock um, maybe a private Discord with the creator or something. There's demand for this on a secondary market. And as those items are traded around, you know, there's no, in, in perpetuity, um, there's ongoing, you know, revenue generated from that marketplace fee for the, for the platform operator too. Um, so that's one of the, you know, really cool aspects of this, of this whole thing that I think is super interesting. So the way I see it, and forgive me if I'm, if I'm missing something, maybe you'll have to go through it one more time, but it sounds like there are four key stakeholders for that to work. 
There's the game developer, let's call them developer. There's the streamer, the, the, the personality, let's call them creator. There's the platform themselves, like OpenSea or D, I don't know, you know, whatever. So let's call them platform. And then there's the players, the consumers. So, so, so they're the, the players, right? So creator makes an asset for a game that's done by a developer. And that asset is, is probably found in the game, right? So, so, you know, whatever a player comes along, they, they unlock or they somehow earn this asset, this skin. They immediately decide to list it, to sell it, to resell it instead of use it. So they put it on the platform. They put it on OpenSea. And it's. So just to jump in here, um, okay, yeah. real quick. So I wouldn't say there are four. I'd say there are three. There's the game okay. dev, which also operates what you were calling the OpenSea there. Most of these okay, games perfect. have an in game marketplace too, which the game okay. developer operates and they collect those revenues I just described from. Okay. So it's the okay, game okay. dev, the players, and the creators. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, okay. That's, that's cleaner then. Thank you for that. So the game dev is the platform, the, the skin sells, the creator gets, say, 70%, the dev slash platform gets, let's just say for argument, 30%. Now that skin is in the hand of another player who can also list it again on the platform, right? And it is the suggestion that on each subsequent re- resell, all three, you know, whatever, um, players in this ecosystem, all three can continue to financially benefit. The developer can continue to take some sort of cut through smart contracts. The creator can continue to take some sort of cut through smart contracts. And the new owner, uh, the reseller gets, you know, whatever, whatever profit that they Mm -hmm. get from, from the selling of the asset. Is that, is that right? 100%. And all okay. of this happens in a beautifully transparent manner that anyone can click, you know, the governing contracts and see the exact revenue split. The original creator can decide that, you know, post primary sale, maybe I'm not going to participate in ongoing revenue and that's all for the, the collector. And, and then it's just the game dev taking their small fee or they can set it up that, you know, maybe that ongoing royalty is, is split between the game dev and the creators such that let's say there's a 10% fee every time it's sold in the future of 5% goes to the creator and 5 to the game dev. The point is, is that there is a, a new revenue stream based upon ongoing trade activity, which isn't really a thing in the traditional model. Absolutely. And if you have any conviction in how big these economies can grow, you know, it's pretty easy to back out at, at just how significant those revenues could be. Yep. Yep. But okay. So that makes sense. So Hypothetically, right? You know, uh, someone makes uh, an Axiom Infinity two, um, and uh, you know, it goes even bigger than Axiom Infinity, and it's like super huge, super successful. It becomes like the killer app, right? Um, well, maybe it's Axiom Infinity, right? Do you have any thoughts on this sort of um, the consumer's perception of centralization? What I mean by that is like today, if um, in Animal Crossing. If Nintendo were to associate itself with the what is currently aftermarket, the gray market of Animal Crossing assets, well, then suddenly they have a perceived and or legal liability, right? So if, if you're selling uh, you know, a certain number of bells and I come in to buy the bells from you and it turns out to be a scam, you know, my inclination, first and foremost, is I'm going to want to get on the phone with Nintendo and say, you know, hey, uh, I got scammed in your game. Give me my bells back. Right. And obviously, if this is a big game and there's lots of these transactions inside this marketplace, that's that's potentially a lot of, you know, CSR, a, a, a lot of tickets for Nintendo to manage. 
they've made the decision they don't want to have anything to do with that any and probably for other reasons as well so any uh animal crossing aftermarket stuff is you know entirely outside of the game and is entirely done sort of peer to peer you know if someone gets scammed for an axie infinity asset is there inclination to go to the, the developer skymaven and say you know hey i want my money back or you know how how does skymaven handle this 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 potential for a huge amount of service tickets um as the scale grows and more and more people might you know whatever be dissatisfied with their trade sure. well well i i'd suggest that the first instance that you described with nintendo preferring that everything happens outside of the game in a peer to peer fashion is exactly the same thing that happens with axie only the peer to peer fashion isn't governed by player auctions and scammy middlemen it's governed by smart contracts in which being scammed is effectively impossible because you know that's not how like trade works on there unless you unless there's some like duplicate listing in fact you, you wouldn't even be able to list like a fake axie in the game store because that's not that's not, not sort of how the marketplace works but essentially by you know giving users that sovereignty and ownership over their assets you're you're doing the same thing that nintendo is it's just the trade that's happening is again like on this very robust financial infrastructure where being scammed is pretty much impossible versus going you know like player auctions or whatever right but but one major or or perhaps minor difference one difference is that under the smart contract model this hypothetical nintendo has a financial stake right currently fin- nintendo has no financial stake in the gray market so they can absolutely wipe their hands of it if they have a financial stake if they take some sort of cut in every trade i don't and maybe it's true that there will be a lot less you know whatever scams or problems because of smart contracts but i don't think they can wipe their hands of it right no you you you're absolutely right there and that's definitely an important difference to point out but um yeah i mean i i i'd, I'd strongly suggest that scamming is pretty much you know i i don't really see how it would happen if if okay, you're operating within yeah okay so that's very interesting that that the architecture the smart contract you know can probably help reduce to close to zero the number of actual scam interactions which means you know the the act- interactions that are left are kind of buyer remorse interactions which are you know obviously there's a lot more framework for saying you know sorry not sorry kind of thing when when someone comes to you and says i want my money back because whatever my asset hasn't increased in value mhm exactly and you know if 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 this asset is listed on the in-game marketplace it's up there with a price anyone can bid on it if the bid is accepted by the owner of that asset the crypto is automatically transferred to their wallet and the axie goes to them all governed by a smart contract yep. unless you're messing around in a shady discord doing like you know black market fake axie dealing um then you know at which point i also think sky mavis could just say you know nothing to do with me you're being you know silly yeah <laughs> yeah any interaction any exchange you you're going to do has to be protected through our smart contracts which means it has to be done through our central our our decentralized store not direct peer to peer through some other vehicles from other means because otherwise we can't use the benefits of the smart contract to make that thing actually safe and secure mm-hmm. yeah okay so all right and i guess in some ways then this is more of a like a sort of philosophical question but it we've talked a lot about digital currency and digital assets and i guess by extension digital wealth um so i mean do you perceive trends do do you see any sort of like you know 
high-level trends when it comes to the this physical versus digital wealth. Like, you know, whatever. My my youngest son is six years old. He's whatever they call him, Generation Alpha or something. Like, is the American dream, the quote-unquote American dream, like I have a job, I have a wife, I have a home, I live there my whole life, I've got the picket fence, uh, you know, I've got the kids and the dog and the car. Like, is that well and truly dead and, uh, you know, whatever digital wealth is just like the nail on the coffin for that. Do digital nomads, are they more in tune with digital wealth and cryptocurrency because they have no interest in settling down? And so they want everything to be liquid and digital. Do you have any sort of thoughts about the sort of higher level societal trends as they relate to the question of physical versus digital? Sure. Well, I, I definitely, at least, you know, speaking with everyone I ever discussed such things with, like the, the, the American dream, as it was just described, definitely, um, you know, lacks uh, appeal on that front. I think, um, I wish I could say that, like, I don't know, uh, more of, uh, sort of, you know, the generation and, and the people I've grown up with were, had a strong opinion in, in either direction as, as it pertains to this physical versus digital wealth, but, I don't think they do. I don't think there's like a big like driving like notion of like what what would be cool or what would be interesting or anything to work towards in, in the same way perhaps the American dream sort of once was. Um, unfortunately, I feel like a lot of, uh, you know, already uh, a lot of um, time spent digitally is pretty, pretty mindless, um, yep, to be totally yep. honest. Um, I, I even observe it in my younger brothers in a way that you know, myself and my other two older brothers what just just weren't really like that. It's like um, you know, succumbing to uh <laughs> all of the things that have been carefully architected to, you know, um absorb attention. But for those that, you know, are paying attention to some of the shifts and and what's going on and, and suddenly an increasing number of my friends are getting seriously into crypto and, you know, treating it how they would a savings account, but perhaps much more aggressively beginning to recognize perhaps some of the failings of, you know, the mm, legacy financial infrastructure and, and economy. And um, I definitely think the whole COVID thing and uh, obviously the extent to which printing is happening in such a short amount of time is a common feeling and, and sort of awareness amongst people now. And, you know, you have that backdrop versus all of this exciting stuff going on out there, um, you know, people finding real like communities that are global mm -hmm, um, in, mm -hmm. in, in such a way that they can now travel around the world and go to any city and like see buddies that they've known on Twitter for ages Absolutely. and people that they, you know, shared cool experiences with, especially in crypto, whether that's around collecting certain things from particular artists you love or going to some of these events that are hosted in these different worlds. Like there's definitely a, a, a very interesting sense that, you know, maybe, maybe this, uh, new way is, is better than the old. Um, it also feels like, um, at least for me that just any money that I store digitally is just way safer <laughs> than being anywhere else. Um, let, let alone, you know, the sort of material financial upside that can come from participating in DeFi and, and investing in some of this stuff. It's just, I don't know. I feel significantly more comfortable with, you know, money in a wallet on a ledger than in a bank where it's prone to, you know, <laughs> whatever might happen. Yeah, whatever um, market conditions you yeah. have no control over. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, yeah, I definitely, definitely think, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a big shift happening there, but just far too few people would be my suggestion, you know, of, of perhaps the younger generations are actually paying attention to this stuff. Cool. Okay. That's very interesting. 
and I, we can't talk about crypto and, and not talk about, well, well whatever, about green, right? I mean, they, they currently don't go hand in hand. It could be argued for, you know, Gen Z, who, who admittedly does care about the environment, who does care about the future of the world at a, at a sort of, you know, demographic level, right? It, it, is, a, it is a trend that is shared quite deeply amongst many Gen Z, regardless of their nationality. Crypto historically has had, you know, a bit of a bad rap because, you know, it, it, there's been tons of media about, oh, the cost of, you know, proof of work and Bitcoin and all the energy consumption of from the mining and all that kind of stuff. So without going into all like the kind of technical specifics of it, I mean, we don't have to get into a sort of detailed proof of state sort of breakdown kind of thing. Do you think that as crypto gets greener, right, do you think we will see a bigger uptick in its adoption? And will that be uh, a signal boost for Gen Z to increase their adoption of crypto because they no longer have a clash with another value they hold dear, which is the desire for a greener world? Mm, Perhaps, although... I'd kind of uh, question the extent to which there are, you know, all of these Gen Z people on the sidelines because of environmental concerns. Um, I mean, I know it, it, it does the rounds and obviously warrants attention, um, but I'm not sure to what extent people are like feel like they can't participate because of that. Um, okay. I, I definitely think, um, you know, obviously with all NFTs blowing up and whatnot, there are all of these, you know, FUD articles about each NFT like burns an Olympic swimming pool of water or, exactly. or whatever it is. I was anyway. There were things like that, um, which generally stem from a poor understanding of how the systems actually work. Um, you know, we reasoned through all of that. There was a bunch of essays published and a bunch of back and forth, which. Again, just great to be a part of this community and, and, and let's have these discussions, you know, taking place and, and being a part of them. But, um, nobody, uh, is, 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 you know, really opposing, you know, something like Ethereum shift to proof of stake. You know, the sooner that comes, the better. Obviously, this is a major computer science feat, which is kind of like rebuilding a plane midair. So also yeah. don't want to rush that. There's billions of dollars of value at stake. Yeah. Um, and then on the flip side, I, I, I'm, you know, probably sympathize to some extent with, the idea that at least one major proof of work chain should exist just because the different consensus mechanism sort of lends itself to, you know, a different type of resilience. Uh, you know, there are certain potential threat vectors, um, that apply to proof of stake that don't to proof of work and vice versa. Um, and I think when we're talking about something as dramatic and profound as, you know, you know, essentially digital gold is something that is going to fulfill that function. Whereas, you know, gold has for how many thousands of years, like, you know, uh, yes, the cost seems super high, but as all the studies have shown, like what's the cost of maintaining the modern fiat system and whatnot by comparison, it's like, it might be one of these instances of a, a lesser of two evils. And, and when you okay. compute it all by comparison, I don't think it's actually as shocking as it might seem. Okay, cool. Fair. I, that's an interesting counterpoint. You are obviously much deeper in it than I am. And, and so my, my analysis of it is, is quite anecdotal, right? So I, you know, I can speak for the people that I know, the articles that I've read, the little, little sort of bubbles of the internet that I participate in. Um, but I do get the feeling that in my circle, you're in three camps. Either you're all in on crypto or 
you're not all in in crypto because it just doesn't make sense. And you just think, I don't understand how, you know, anything that's not real could ever matter. Or you understand the potential of crypto, but you, you're, you're worried about, you're worried about the environmental impact. And I would say most of the people that I know fall into one of those three buckets. And of course, it's more nuanced than that. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's just my sort of anecdotal perception. And is that there's a, there's a non-insignificant percentage of peers and younger, of, you know, my age group, who when I talk to them about crypto, they understand, you know, about as much as I do, but are turned off by their perception of, of the environmental impact of it. So, so the, the messages about how that's a false concern or, or sorry, maybe a lesser of, of, of two evils are not necessarily getting through to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think the literature available on this is so comprehensive and uh, and brilliant uh, across the board. You know, you've got people like Nick Carter write amazing, amazing, elaborate essays addressing this head on. Um, I think, you know, there is a lot of nuance to it. Obviously, it's a, a contentious topic given the, uh, you know, stakes are high. Obviously, yep. Um, yep. to some extent, you can probably believe that there are coordinated FUD campaigns around some of this stuff. On the flip side, you can obviously acknowledge some people probably get overly dreamy and overly defensive about it. But if, if, if you if you drill down and, 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 you know, really dig into it, like, you know, there's a lot of nuance that that gives cool. me comfort on that front. Well, I, I I don't know his essays, but I will I will check them out right after this podcast. I've taken a note, um, and I guess uh, the the last section that I have here, I, I I've labeled lessons and messages, um, and and so I thought this would sort of be a fun exercise, which is like uh, clearly you believe very passionately in the potential of crypto to to disrupt everything, gaming finance, corporate governance, et cetera. Um, and let's, because of the nature of this podcast, the nature of my world, I'm probably, you know, whatever, more suited to talk about game, gaming and the various players in the gaming industry than I am about, you know, whatever DAOs or something like that. So, so I thought it'd be fun to have us close with a sort of different message from you for each of the various players in the current, you know, value chain of game development, distribution, and consumption. And so I thought it would be interesting to start with the developers. So, so Pierce, what message do you have for the developers? What do you wish the Ubisofts, the Rovios, and the Riots of the world knew about crypto that maybe currently today they might be getting wrong? Well, yeah, I, I think one of the um, important things is is kind of just acknowledging, um, you know, the state of the technology that a lot of the bottlenecks to engaging with this stuff at scale, like really are being solved. Um, you know, things like the scalability side for the Ethereum ecosystem, uh, looking extremely exciting with some super compelling solutions hitting the market. I think um, oftentimes I feel a little, little frustrated when I chat to people around the industry when, you know, they present these arguments against crypto that have, you know, been, been addressed sort of head on, um, multiple times. Um, I'd also just, yeah, encourage people to, to a bit more, um, you know, earnestly explore some of the writing out there. Um, I think there's some awesome information online that, that addresses, you know, you, you can get a very long way into forming a very robust opinion pretty quickly. Now, um, that's one thing the space has been really good at is making resources available. And then, yeah, I think, you know, especially for maybe, you know, the more, the more indie crowd or whatever, like all of this infrastructure is falling into place. You know, it's an incredibly exciting time. Uh, you know, I, I know exactly where I'd been looking. Um, you know, it's obviously still early in this transition, but 
as I alluded to earlier, like if this thesis plays out to even half its potential, this is still going to be the biggest shift in, in the games industry since, you know, the advent of mobile, right? Um, Absolutely. And to be honest, I've actually been pretty surprised on, on the larger publisher side. Like, um, you know, they're very, definitely very aware of what's going on. And I think we may actually see some activity from a number of them sooner than many think. Um, you know, Ubisoft, for example, has already been active in this space for a couple of years and, you know, always, always super impressed chatting, chatting with those guys. They've got a great idea of how this stuff can be used and where it's going. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I've also been impressed at how, uh, how much news I've read about Ubisoft's, uh, the plays that they're making, the investments that they're making, the bets that they're placing on, on the crypto space. And Ubisoft is an old stomping ground of mine. So, you know, obviously that's, that's, that's pretty cool to see. Okay. So what about, uh, the creators? Um, the ninjas, the Prestons, the Mr. Beasts, the top level streamers, uh, the, the people making great content inside of Roblox or inside a core, uh, you know, what, what, what message do you have for them about, um, you know, whatever the potential of crypto? Um, well, I, I guess there's kind of two, two different camps there. I think first for the, the like bigger creators, um, I think, if you take a peek under the hood, the sort of creator tooling being unlocked, you know, in the form of maybe NFTs and social tokens is so powerful and offers this wicked brand new sort of monetization spectrum and these brilliant mechanisms for interacting much more directly and much more deeply with your audience. Yep. To give you an example, and it comes from the music realm, um, you know, some of uh, my, my buddies from Delphi, where I came from prior to Bitcraft, um, you know, massive fans of Disclosure and Disclosure was auctioning off um, an NFT of the original Disclosure face from the original album artwork. Um, and, a, and a few buddies got together, pulled the funds and bought this thing. Yeah, it went for quite a lot, but at the same time, it offered you four front row tickets to every concert in perpetuity. <laughs> um, they ended up, you know, connecting in a Telegram chat and, and now Anil from Delphi's become really good buddies with them to the extent that Disclosure ended up, you know, DJing a house party that they hosted down in Miami a few weeks ago. Like, this is such cool technology that can just unlock really interesting stuff like that in, you know, kind of whatever way you want to go with it. Um, so I think there are very creative ways you can leverage these, you know, new tools to, to build a deeper relationship with the audience and, and also, in many instances, like allow them to participate in, in your success with a shared economic upside. Yeah. Um, Jesse Walden from Variant uh, has some great thoughts around this that he calls Patronage Plus uh, that, I, that I strongly recommend people check out. Cool. Okay. You, you, you said you wanted to split it into two. You talked about the bigger creators. Is there, is there, is there a different yeah, value for sure. chain for smaller creators? Or I think we've um, kind of touched upon it earlier. Just uh, understanding like how the economics of these other platforms can totally skew in, you know, in, in your favor versus right. the existing okay. stuff, right? Your, yep. your, your sort of chunk of the pie is that much bigger. There's also this additional new revenue stream that's like ongoing that you can participate Perfect. in. And again, it's like, you know, global by default. There's already obviously uh, some degree of sort of capital abundance in crypto, like um, strongly recommend testing the waters. Cool. Okay. Um, I guess three and four in any order you want um, platform holders. What do you want the Valves, the Apples, the Googles of the world to know uh, about crypto? And then I guess, I guess players. 
Sure, I guess I'll do players for uh, first, so we can uh, uh, end on a bad note. Um, but uh, <laughs> we're um, coming. Yeah. <laughs> the zombies uh, are coming. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, for the players, I'd just say there is literally no better way to truly learn about these technologies beyond just using them. Go and buy some ETH, spin up a crypto wallet. Like the fastest way to educate yourself is to go Absolutely. and experiment. This is an incredibly exciting time to be involved with. Uh, a sort of new emerging dimension of the games industry that, you know, some people, I included, are of the view is going to be, you know, profoundly important. Um, and let alone the fact that, you know, for some of these strong community members that rally around these projects early on, they've also seen, you know, significant financial upside, if that's something that's of interest to people. Um, it's, it's, it's changing quickly, but the past couple of years have given me the same vibes as, you know, the first time I started using VR in the early days or even messing around with some, uh, you know, sort of first-gen games of, of, of different genres over the years. But, you know, things are kind of clunky, although, again, that's changing. But it's somehow really rewarding to work through these teething pains. Um, I'm very confident that the more people dig into the potential of this decentralized infrastructure, both for gaming and beyond, uh, the more convinced they will become. You know, to some extent, like, stickiness has been driven in games uh, a lot by sort of exploiting player psychology by building these sort of compulsion loops, right? People mm -hmm. whip out Candy Crush intending to play for five minutes, but end up playing for an hour. And maybe sometimes it doesn't feel great. By contrast, like the incentive structures of these new games and worlds is through shared economics and actual ownership, you know, a, a sort of skin in the game. Um, at least to my mind, that's significantly more compelling and at the very least uh, warrants some further investigation. And, you know, I appreciate the games aren't quite AAA yet, but if, if you believe in this conceptually, like, I, I definitely think it's worth familiarizing yourself with already. Um, and yeah, as I say, super early, but there's loads to figure out still. Um, but it's very fun to be a part of and either follow or participate in governance discussions around protocols and games. Um, you know, at the end of the day, these, these are community owned and driven projects that like everyone can own a piece of if they want to. Um, yes. So, yeah, I think the communities around these things are super exciting. Cool, cool. And, I like and, that. And then, uh, yeah, lastly, to, to the kind of platforms out there, I guess it's hard to do it with, it was sort of, I'll probably have to just use broad strokes because it kind of varies by platform, right? You know, there's some crypto games already on Steam uh, through Valve, like obviously the Apple, Google mobile distribution things tricky to speculate on. Like let's, let's kind of see how the, the full consequences of this uh, Apple Epic case uh, sort of play out. But um yeah, I mean, I I just think hard about, you know, what, what these technologies are at their core and like um, how they do potentially present a massive threat. I mean, it's kind of tricky to figure out how these two could be reconciled because one's kind of the antithesis of the other, you know. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, we've kind of been given uh, these tools that we can sort of, by their very design, build things which can't be sort of uh, corrupted or broken in, in the in the way. Not to suggest legacy institutions are, but um, you know, Chris Dixon, I think it might have come from, um, said that you know, there's in crypto we have this play on one of Google's original slogans that was you know, don't be evil, which mm -hmm. now feels rather amusing. Um, <laughs> but you know, where where Web two was, don't be evil. Web three is, can't be evil. Right. Right. Everything I've read that quote. Everything is baked into the code on a transparent public ledger for all to see. I mean, it's a very important shift in the way we operate as as a society on the internet. And you know, I think as we start talking about the metaverse and increasingly pervasive and immersive digital environments, like all of the potential threats of some of these 
perhaps more value extractive business models that have governed the web for a while are only amplified, right? So yeah, I mean, <laughs> I guess that's my message. <laughs> that's a good message, man. That's a that's a good message. You 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 gave me exactly what I was looking for. Um, gosh, uh, well, Pierce, looking at the we're 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 an hour and ten in. I feel like every one of these four bubbles could have been an hour long podcast in an, in their own right. You're 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 very articulate. You're very well educated. You're very passionate. It's been a real pleasure to chat with you about this stuff. I always close with the same question, or rather, I guess I have been for the last few months. I didn't necessarily start doing this. But um, did I not ask you anything you thought I was going to ask you? Or, like when I first reached out to you, did you think there was an opportunity here to talk about something that you held dear um, that we didn't get a chance to go over today? Because if so, this closing section is is a great chance to do that. I am... Um... I don't actually think so, you know. I think we've we've done a pretty good job of um, you know, covering covering a lot of these topics. I don't know. I I, I guess just would want to add that there's I talked about, you know, these technologies fundamentally being disintermediation technologies. Um we talk about how, you know, incumbent institutions are reacting to them, uh how they might adapt to them. Like, you know, at the higher level, when I was also talking about, you know, Bitcoin in the context of central banks and actual money, like, you know, this pattern is playing out all over the place right now. Like, I don't know whether listeners would have been following what's going on down in El Salvador. You know, this country has just announced Bitcoin as legal tender mm-hmm. and that they're going to airdrop, you know, some Bitcoin to all of their citizens. And like, when we start talking about, you know, whether a Samsung might embrace on the Samsung store, uh, you know, crypto enabled applications like Samsung doing that feels significantly less rogue than a country <laughs> announcing <laughs> you know what i mean so I, I i just i just wanted to uh like touch upon that because i know these things might seem like they're beyond the realm of of possibility in the immediate term but you know things can change really quickly um i'm i'm pretty confident you know one of these, one of these uh, bigger sort of incumbents um, will, you know, adopt a strategy to this effect. And uh, yeah, as I say, just exciting time to be involved in, and uh, I strongly urge everyone to, you know, at, at the very least, actually get some hands-on experimentation with it yeah, and uh, check absolutely. it all out. And you, you said something earlier, uh, which, which I 100% agree with, which is, you know, buy some Ethereum or, or, or Bitcoin or whatever, because there's no better way to learn than to have skin in the game, you know, whatever, yada, 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 disclaimer, not financial advice, <laughs> blah, 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 all that stuff. Yeah. But that's exactly what I did a couple of years ago um, because I was reading these articles and I was just saying, oh my God, I don't understand. I, 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 I have a hard time caring. And then I bought my first, you know, it was like a hundred bucks worth of Ethereum or something like that. And magically, suddenly I cared a whole lot more. <laughs> Um, so exactly. it, it doesn't take a huge investment to give yourself the incentive to um, start exploring deep and understanding a little bit more about why this stuff can be so transformative. Absolutely. Totally agree. All right, sir. Um, have yourself a wonderful day. Have yourself a wonderful summer. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. Ben, really appreciate it. Uh, super fun. Um, always a fan of the pods. And uh, yeah, uh, look forward to look forward to following along for the rest of them. All right. Talk to you soon. And that's a wrap. As usual, I want to thank you for tuning in to the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Mattis. I was joined today by Pierce Kicks. 
partner at Bitcraft Ventures, an overall enthusiast in the blockchain and cryptocurrency space, particularly as it relates to the world of gaming. If you found any of the topics we covered today interesting, please don't hesitate to reach out. Let me know if you'd like me to deep dive further into the play to earn space or anything related to NFT, how NFTs overlap with gaming, and you have suggestions about guests I should be speaking to to dive deeper into that space. Please reach out on Twitter or email or LinkedIn. I'm not hard to find. I'd love to hear from you and I'd love to dive in deeper. I find this space fascinating. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. Talk to you soon.